Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. And with my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And after our Brooklyn post-fight sojourn from the echoing cavern that was Eric's hotel room, we're back (laughs) in the podcasting environment in which we're most comfortable. And which hopefully will give you the best possible listening experience with headphones on, and hundreds of miles between us. <laughs> is, is it the listening experience that, that you're uh, preferring or the distance from me that makes this seem so uh, appealing to you? I've said enough. I guess so. Uh, well, speaking of that uh, that post-fight podcast in my somewhat echoey hotel room, when we recorded that uh, with uh, the great Brian Campbell late Saturday night or, or early Sunday morning, really, I guess, uh, neither of us had yet seen the clip uh, of our reactions to the Deontay Wilder knockout at ringside in super slow-mo. I got to say, now that I've seen it, we were pretty boring. Uh, you, you know, your mouth opened up a little, but only a little. It, it wasn't a full-on dropping of the jaw. And I put my hand over my mouth, which was mildly amusing, but that's about as far as I'd go. Uh, I got to say, our, our, our Twitter peeps definitely overhyped it. Now, obviously... Miguel Flores, Ray's brother in the front row with the red tie. He was the star exactly. of the clip. Exactly. He's the only person I know who's actually become a meme. I think. <laughs> yes, he has definitely become a meme. He was the star. And and Dan Raphael had a decent supporting role as guy doing something with his phone who misses the knockout punch. Uh, but so compared to them, you, you and I were really just bit players, extras, essentially. Yes, yes. I was in the role of man behind timekeeper's finger. <laughs> Yeah, your face was partially obscured, so if your jaw really did drop, uh, it, it was hard to even tell. So, yeah, oh well. Right. <laughs> how many how many seconds of our fifteen minutes does that count as? Yes, well, uh, enough, I suppose. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, this is a, uh, as is evidenced already by the way we started this, a somewhat atypical week on the podcast. Uh, so, due to my travel schedule, as I'm off to Euroland shortly, uh, we're recording early uh, before the weekend's fights are complete and before any major news that might have broken over Saturday, Saturday or Sunday. As a result, our recaps of those fights are quite possibly inaccurate. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> we're not doing them. Um, so if anything, if anything warrants coverage of Austin Trout or Terrell Gaucher or Devin Haney's score spectacular knockouts or somebody announces a mega fight or a network deal, we'll double back to that business on next week's pods. Um, so that's what we won't be doing on this week's episode. What we will be doing is previewing the bout between Anthony Joshua and Andy Ruiz and discussing what it means for the heavyweight division. We'll look ahead to a few other June 1st fights. We'll cover some news I'm going to do an extended version of the listener mailbag. Uh, But first, let's continue to talk heavyweights. Uh, As we already alluded to last week, Deontay Wilder flattened, flattened, I tells you, Dominic Brazil. Uh, On June 15th, Tyson Fury is a 100 to 1. Yes, 100 to 1 favorite to beat Tom Schwartz. And in between, this Saturday, Anthony Joshua is in action. Indeed. Uh, in, in a span of 29 days, we'll get to see all three claimants to the heavyweight throne do their thing. We hoped Brazil might be competitive with Wilder. He wasn't. I don't think anyone has any illusions about Tom Schwartz being competitive with Fury. So our only hope for a real two-way fight, it would seem, is Andy Ruiz against Joshua. 
The sportsbooks have Ruiz as about a 10 to 1 long shot. Joshua is 22 and 0 with 21 knockouts. He's in his physical prime at age 29. Ruiz is also 29, and he also has 21 knockout wins on his record. He's 32 and 1 with those 21 knockouts. His only loss is a majority decision to Joseph Parker, the same Joseph Parker who was dominated over the 12 round distance by Joshua. Logic might say that if Joshua could dominate Parker, he'll dominate Ruiz. Uh, but uh, not sure if you've ever heard this before, Kieran. I might be coining a brand new phrase. Styles make fights. Uh, trademark Eric Raskin 2019. Wow. There yes, you go. Putting my stamp on it. Um, so if I'm right, and this crazy idea I have that uh, styles make fights is accurate, does Ruiz have the style and ability to give AJ problems? No. Wow, that was quick. Yeah. <laughs> I have uh, supporting evidence. Okay. Um, okay, so let me rephrase it a little bit. Uh, he arguably has at least elements of the necessary style and ability. The big problem that he has, uh, it's not the only problem, but the big problem literally is that he doesn't have the size to go with it. Uh, He has fast hands. He has solid boxing skills. um, But the only way he can make him have any impact at all is by getting in the kind of range that will obviously enable him to land uh, those those fast punches. And that means somehow he's got to walk through Joshua's jab. Joshua's uppercuts, Joshua's overhand rights, and that's going to be very, very hard indeed for him to do. Look, Ruiz is six foot two with a 74-inch reach, a perfectly serviceable big man in the real world. Joshua is six six with an 82-inch reach, um, and Joshua uses that jab very, very effectively. He uses every inch of his size very effectively. He fights tall. Um, it, it's just, you know, it's going to be really, really difficult for Ruiz to get past that. Um, now, we have seen opponents with fast hands have some success, uh, albeit briefly against Joshua. I mean, Alexander Povetkin definitely stunned him mm-hmm. in the first round of their of their fight. Um, Dylan White had his moments against him when they fought. But in both cases, Joshua came back to score stoppages, and I have a hard time seeing Ruiz avoiding that fight. Uh, you mentioned the comparison there, um, that, uh, that Ruiz fought Parker, Joshua fought Parker, um, you know, yes, Parker was the first and so far only pro ad- opponent to last the distance with Joshua, um, and he did edge Ruiz. But, you know, part of the problem was that I think Parker really didn't choose to maximize his obvious advantages. He was he was trying to box Ruiz in that fight um, rather than walk him down or impose himself on him. And and had he done so, he might have been a more clear winner rather than the narrow winner that he was uh, I just don't see Joshua making that same mistake. I think Joshua's going to use all the tools that he has at his disposal, all the advantages he has, and I fully expect him to dispense of Ruiz on Saturday night. Okay. It goes without saying uh, that boxing fans, even though we're about to say it, that boxing fans are going to be <laughs> such a... Yeah, that phrase, I tell you. Anyway, um, the boxing fans are going to be comparing the performances of the three top heavyweights. And even casual fans uh, as well, actually, as not least thanks to Deontay's uh, one-punch knockout uh, last week. Uh, all three are crossing over into the mainstream somewhat. Um, which, this might seem an odd question, but I think it's probably something that has occurred to a lot of folks. And in fact, Joshua himself had to speak on it. Uh, a little bit during some of his uh, uh, media work uh, to build up the fight. Um, here's the thing. Because of the way Andy Ruiz looks physically, he is not the body beautiful that the likes of Anthony Joshua or Deontay Wilder are, to put it mildly. Um, because of the way he looks, is it going to be harder 
for Joshua highlights on SportsCenter, for example, to catch a more casual fan's eye, um, is it going to be harder for anyone? Say Joshua does do what I think he's going to do and, and mm-hmm. beat up Ruiz and knock him out. Is it going to be harder? Is a casual fan going to look at that and go, well, gosh, yeah, you'd expect that to happen. Look at that guy. He's like all muscle and that guy's just a blob. You'd expect that to happen. So is Joshua almost in a bit of a no-win situation in terms of like the casual fans here? Are they going to look at this matchup and just not take any good result for Joshua seriously? Yeah, I, I think that is the case. Um, it's not fair because Andy Ruiz can fight, but it's the reality of it. I mean, people, you know, hardcore fans and casuals alike were making fun of Dominic Brazil's moves yeah. jiggling on the slow-mo yeah. replays. So I can only imagine how they'll react to Ruiz's Chris Farley Chippendales physique on display. Um, Big muscles don't make you a better boxer. Uh, You know, prime Larry Holmes kicks prime Frank Bruno's ass. But to someone who doesn't really watch much boxing, you make assumptions based on the physique. And the assumption about Andy Ruiz will be that he's a bum. It's not fair, but... If Joshua knocks him out and that highlight is, you know, as you said, if it's on Sports Center the way Wilder's knockout of Brazil was, people will see it and assume Joshua was fighting a tomato can. And if he doesn't knock him out uh, and they show a few clips on Sports Center followed by the result Joshua wins decision, that probably hurts Joshua's stock yeah. with the casual viewer. It's a strange situation, but a big 6 foot 6 inch guy who's built like a Greek god is in people's minds, supposed to have an easy time with a guy who's built yeah. like a Subway sandwich artist. Uh, <laughs> it just it just makes wow, it. Wow, Eric, killing with the analogies. Yeah, I'm doing all right. And you're uh, you're selling it well with your laughter. Uh, win 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 all around. Uh, but yeah, just to, to sum this up, it, it definitely makes it harder for Joshua to win this round of compare contrast with Wilder and Fury based on just what his opponent looks like here. Um, And speaking of which, uh, this whole compare contrast and the Wilder, Fury, Joshua thing, these three top heavyweights are all accusing each other of ducking and dodging. Each one is claiming that he wants to make the big fights. The other guys don't. They can't all be right. Uh, At the moment, Fury looks most responsible for spoiling our fun, since he's the one who defected to another promoter and another network at the 11th hour of negotiations for a Wilder rematch. As for Joshua... Maybe he wants Wilder, maybe he doesn't, maybe he's content to let it marinate for another year or so and get bigger, but if you look at his recent resume, it's hard to suggest Anthony Joshua doesn't face quality opponents. Look at his last four fights. He won the instant classic against Vladimir Klitschko, then he stopped solid Carlos Takam, then he beat Parker, who was unbeaten at the time, and then he took on arguably the number four guy in the division, Alexander Povetkin. So, Kieran... What do you make of all these various accusations of one fighter avoiding another? Is there legit reason to believe that any one of these three fighters doesn't ultimately want to take part in an Ali Foreman Frazier like round robin? Well, look, as he touched on in the setup there, the, the the principal reason we're even having this discussion is Tyson Fury. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Anthony Joshua was the clear man on the outside looking in when Wilder faced Fury last year. And it looked like he was going to be the same again as, as Fury and Wilder closed in on that rematch. But then, you know, as you mentioned, Fury suddenly announced the deal with ESPN. Um, and what had indeed looked like being just that, that kind of round robin, um, fell apart. I think had those two met in a rematch and had a decisive winner emerge from that rematch, the pressure on Joshua to have then gotten involved in that 
uh, and to fight that winner would have been immense and, and probably hard to resist. Um, but, you know, Fury did walk away. And, and Fury over the last week or so, you know, in his inimitable, charming manner, has been claiming that, you know, Wilder can't run away from me forever, he says. Well, I don't think Wilder <laughs> ran away from me once. <laughs> right. Um, you know, Fury was in negotiations to fight Wilder. Negotiations that, we're led to believe, at the one-yard line. And Fury is now fighting Tom Schwartz. And that says it all, really. Um, and, and we touched about, we touched on this a little bit when this first happened. And, and it doesn't mean that Fury is afraid to fight Wilder any more than Joshua is. But... All three men are obviously anxious to secure the greatest amount of guaranteed money for least risk and to leverage their positions. So when and if these clashes with the other two do come about, they're able to get as much money for it as possible. And in that respect, they're no different than than anybody else going about their business. Uh, I kind of suspect, or at least I get the impression that of the three, the one who's a little who's least reticent to fight the others is Wilder. And, and that's not because... Twitter rando, we're holding water for Showtime or Deontay Wilder. Um, it's just that he did fight Fury once, and he's the person who didn't walk away from negotiations for a second fight. Right. Um, and also, I think, you know, the cost-benefit ratio is a little different for him. Um, Joshua has a massive, massive brand in the UK. There can be very few people in Britain who do not know who Anthony Joshua is. And it might be a similar story in the UK for Tyson Fury, although I doubt it's at quite the same level. And that isn't the case for Wilder over here. Boxing fans know him, obviously, but not every sports fan knows Deontay Wilder, let alone every person in the street, which is the case with, with, with Anthony Joshua uh, in the UK. Um, the number of sports fans who do know him is only going to increase if he does more things like he did to Dominic Brazil. Right. Um, but he isn't a household name in this country the way, say, Tiger Woods is. Joshua is that name in his country. So... Um, in a way, Joshua can afford to string it out a little bit more until the cards are more clearly in his favor. There's a, you know, there's a caution. There's a tremendous amount of money available and money that'll be there, you know, for Joshua, whether they fight each other or not. It, it, so it's not that they're afraid of each other. It's because they each have different considerations. They're each at different places, you know, with their fan bases. Um, and each is, I think, assessing the situation and trying to see how it falls to their greater advantage before committing. And, and I think there's going to be a, a fair bit more of that before it does ultimately happen. I think it will ultimately have to happen for pick whichever two you want are, are going to have to meet each other at some point. I'm not at all convinced it happens in 2019, but in 2020, I think it probably does, but there's still a lot more jockeying and posturing to be done. Yeah, I think. Yeah. And, and to some extent, I think uh, Wilder both helped and hurt himself with the right. result in the Brazil fight that he built himself up bigger, built up a fight with one of those guys bigger. Also probably gave both Fury and Joshua reason to say, you know, if I'm going to step into the ring with a guy who punches this hard, I want to make sure we're maximizing the money for it. And if that means waiting a little bit longer, we'll wait a little bit longer. Right. I mean, Tyson Fury's already found out for himself. You can win nine rounds against Deontay Wilder, but right. he only needs to hit you a couple of times. <laughs> right. So, um, but anyway, notwithstanding some of what we've already said, the story here isn't 
just Anthony Joshua fighting Andy Ruiz, or even Joshua compared to Wilder and Fury. Um, it's also Anthony Joshua fighting in America and specifically fighting in New York City at Madison Square Garden. Um, we've been waiting a while for AJ to make his US debut. And he's certainly proven he's a massive door at home, like I was just saying. You know, he can put 90,000 people in a stadium. Um, 90,000 people won't fit in Madison Square Garden, of course. But what <laughs> sort of a crowd are you expecting, nonetheless, in New York? Um, and how much – here's the other thing, I think, the other factor, is how much is the promotion hurt by Big Baby Miller not being involved and Ruiz being his replacement? Well, I, I already talked about the very superficial damage of the Ruiz physique, uh, and you know I think that is amplified when you consider that Big Baby, at about 300 pounds, really looked the part. Uh, yeah. And you know a sharp contrast to what we have with Andy Ruiz on that front. He also would have talked the part. Yeah, Miller is excellent at promoting his fights. Uh, if he hadn't failed forty-seven different drug tests, there would be <laughs> so far a, <laughs> right and counting. Uh, there would be a real buzz of excitement about Joshua Miller in this last week leading up to it. Instead, there's very little buzz at all about Joshua Ruiz. It's basically any buzz there is is one-man show kind of buzz. It's Anthony Joshua buzz. It's Let's compare Joshua with Wilder Buzz, um, and as you just suggested, it, it's Joshua Comes to America Buzz. Um, in terms of the crowd, I went on the ticket site to look. Uh, there are still plenty of seats available. They might get close to a sellout. Maybe they'll even get all the way there. They're certainly not there yet. The tickets are expensive, and that's not helping. Um, mm. It's just over 200 bucks for the cheap seats. There are lots Oof. of 2000 and $3,000 seats still for sale at ringside. Um I would imagine, though, that the garden will ultimately end up pretty full uh, when all's said and done. The question is how many Brits are coming over, and will we get a loud, rowdy British crowd or more of a curious, less passionate American crowd? If the Canelo-Rocky Fielding crowd in the same building recently was any indication, there should be good energy. So I'm predicting, you know, not a sellout because the tickets look a bit overpriced, but a loud crowd just the same. Uh, but no doubt the, the switch from Miller to Ruiz hurts the promotion, hurts the big event feel, even if there's a perfectly strong case to be made that Andy Ruiz is, in fact, the better, tougher challenger. Yeah, and of course, if you're a New York fight fan looking for a big fight, they're kind of cam cannibalizing each other a little bit. We just had Wilder, yeah. we've got Joshua, and then you got Golovkin. It's like, well, I can only put, spend, my, spend my money on one, so right. that's got to be a factor, too. I should also <laughs> and, point and out that loud, rowdy British fans is a redundancy. Oh, I suppose so. Yeah, I didn't need to use uh, quite so many words there. But um, in terms of uh, having the money to afford more than one of the, these uh, fights, if you can afford even this one, uh, it's not easy for everyone uh, now yeah. that I've looked up those ticket prices. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, there are a few notable bouts on that undercard. Uh, one of them, Chris Algieri against Tommy Coyle. We discussed a little bit when it was announced. There's not much more to say about that one, that 140-pounder. Uh, but here is a fight worth commenting on. Uh, super middleweight belt holder Callum Smith just had his opponent announced in the past couple of days, and he will take on veteran Hassan Ndam. Uh, Eric, how good is Callum Smith? And does Ndam pose a threat at age 35? Well, like Joshua, Callum Smith is making his U.S. debut, uh, and he can fight. If you yeah. haven't seen him yet, uh, he's a legit top guy at 168. It, it's a wide open division. Uh, there's him. There's Chris Eubank Jr., Caleb Plant, maybe Canelo if he fights at super middle again. 
But Callum Smith might well be the top guy right now. He won a World Boxing Super Series tournament last year, although it was a weaker field than what we've seen in the other WBSS tournaments. Best win on his record is a knockout of George Groves. Uh, He also stopped Rocky Fielding in one round. He's a clear favorite here against Ndam. But, you know, I I don't think Ndam is washed at 35. From the looks of things, he's still a capable guy. The problem is that in addition to being a little past his best, he's really a middleweight and not a big middleweight. Mm. Um, So this looks to me like a fight where Callum Smith has to work a bit, but is never really in danger of losing. I think that's right. Uh, one other bout of note on the undercard. Uh, last month, we covered in depth the history being made when Olympic gold medalist Claressa Shields unified the women's middleweight title against Christina Hammer in Atlantic City. On this Madison Square Garden card, Ireland's Olympic gold medalist, Katie Taylor, looks to do the same at lightweight against Delphine Persoon of Belgium. We haven't really discussed Katie Taylor much yet on the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Uh, so, Kieran, what's the basic background on her, and why isn't this fight getting anywhere near as much attention in the U.S. as Shields Hammer did? Well, like you mentioned, Katie Taylor, like Clarissa Shields, is an Olympian. She actually carried the flag for Ireland at the uh, 2012 Olympics, um, and like Clarissa, she won gold there. Um, she's an, She was an incredibly accomplished amateur, uh, five consecutive world championships, six consecutive European championship golds, um, and as a pro, she's undefeated with, as you said, um, several of the world title belts and looking to, in her division, and looking to add the last one. Um why is this not getting anywhere near as, as much attention over here as Shields Hammer did? Well, the obvious one for a start is Taylor isn't American. Right. Um, another factor is Katie Taylor hates doing media. Hmm. Hates doing media. Um, she's great when she talks. She's a she's a she's a really nice interview, a very agreeable person, but she hates it. Um, for the folks at Matchroom, getting her to do any ma- media at all is a painful experience, even though she has gotten better at it, albeit under duress. Um, and then you compare that to Clarissa and just try to stop her from saying something into a camera or a microphone or on social media. Um, I mean, Clarissa really, and Christina, actually, the, the two of them mm-hmm. did a great job of selling uh, that fight. And the other factor is that Delphine Person is not Christina Hammer, right? right? So Hammer was universally recognized as the most legitimate threat to Shields, the biggest rival claimant to her place atop the division. That isn't the place with Delphine Person. Taylor's big rival, potentially, is Amanda Serrano. Uh, Serrano is 35-1-1, a world titleist of multiple divisions, one hell of a fighter. And adding to that storyline, Taylor has beaten her sister, uh, Cindy Serrano, last October. That's the rivalry for Katie Taylor. That's the big fight. And while that might not ever be as big in the U.S. as Shields Hammer was, uh, that's the fight for Katie Taylor that will be really big worldwide and in Europe. Um, the only other notable card this upcoming weekend takes place in San Jacinto, California, with Fox Sports 1 televising. In the main event, Devin Alexander Devano. What is this? Is it Devin Alexander Devon Alexander? <laughs> I was just going to say that I think it's San Jacinto, not San Jacinto. So I don't know. I'm not the person to ask. Okay. So somewhere in California, <laughs> one of the Alexander brothers meets Ivan Redcock at welterweight. And in the co-feature... It's a meeting of middleweights Willie Monroe Jr. and Hugo Centeno Jr. 
anything there to catch your eye apart from my mispronunciations? <laughs> um, I think they're both competitive matchups. Um, you know, you look at those four fighters, none of them is someone you really need to watch for in terms of having a, a bright future. Uh, the fights, the matchups just kind of have to stand up on their own merits. Uh, Centennial was an overhyped prospect whose limitations have been exposed. I'd make Monroe the favorite over him. And Rick Catch and Alexander, uh, they're both in their 30s, best days behind them. But it's an interesting fight to see yeah. if one of them can remain relevant, kind of remain on the on the fringes of contention. And I guess I'd favor Alexander in that one. Yeah. Okay, let's go outside the ring. And uh, again, we're recording this on Friday, May 24th. There isn't a whole lot of outside the ring news to cover yet this week. Uh, but one thing worth hitting on is that New York hosted the Manny Pacquiao-Keith Thurman kickoff press conference on Tuesday, and that was followed by a second press conference in L.A. You're rarely going to get anything too explosive out of a Manny Pacquiao <laughs> press conference, but uh, but Thurman did his best to talk tough, saying in New York that this will be Pacquiao's last fight and predicting, quote, I'm going to do to Manny Pacquiao what he did to Oscar De La Hoya. Manny is 40 years old, so it's not exactly a crazy claim. Uh, Kieran, do you think fans should go into this fight thinking that if Pacquiao loses, there is a good chance that it's his final fight? I think any time a boxer's 40 years old with 70-some professional fights, there's always a chance that any fight could be his last fight, whoever he is, I think. Um, you know, and especially if, if Thurman beats him and beats him cleanly, clearly, and without controversy, if Manny was looking for ways to rationalize the defeats he has suffered over the last several years and most boxers do just that um he could look at his last you know whatever it is four losses and say well jeff horn and tim bradley didn't actually beat me i won both those fights and he'd have a pretty good case especially with bradley to, to say that mm -hmm. um if he really wanted to stretch it he could say well i had a bum shoulder against floyd mayweather so that doesn't count um and juan manuel marquez was suspiciously bulky um <laughs> you, you know so um all of that, so he could, so he could sort of use all of that as rationalization, and then if if Thurman were to beat him, it could, you know, and beat him clearly and convincingly, it could be, you know, the the first opportunity for him to say, oh, okay, this guy beat me, maybe it is time for me to stop. But from everything I can tell, I mean, we'll see what happens, obviously, when when they do fight. But doesn't seem to be much indication he's ready to retire, does there? I mean, no. it feels like he needs boxing. For other reasons than to be a boxer, if you know what I mean. Uh, it's, it's, and it's not just money for money's sake, I think. I, I, we talked about this a bit when during the, the Pacquiao-Bronner fight week. that I, He needs to be able to distribute ringside tickets as political favors. He needs that profile. He needs the money for his political career. And he also just needs that profile for his political career. I, I guess if he were to start losing on the regular basis to lesser fighters, that profile might suffer and it won't be in his interest politically. But... I suspect as long as it benefits him and he's not taking too much punishment, he'll, he'll keep going. But, but who knows? Uh, I mean, and, but yes, the short answer is any fight could be his last. Uh, there are, and this is not exactly a, a hot take, there are certainly far fewer fights ahead of him than behind him. Let's say that. <laughs> I would think so. What's he got, like 70 fights at something this like point, that, yeah. something like that? Yeah, I'm going to say exactly. fewer than 70 left, left to go. Yes. Yeah. Hot take. There you go. Hashtag. <laughs> All right, so uh, also in the news, and this is from the Department of if These People Think You're Corrupt, You're Corrupt. <laughs> um, the International Olympic Committee, that renowned paragon of global virtue, uh, has good news, 
determined that boxing will continue at future games, including the upcoming 2020 Olympiad in Tokyo. But the AIBA, the International Boxing Association, will be stripped of the right to oversee it after an investigative report said its behavior, quote, presented serious legal, financial and reputational risks to the IOC and the Olympic movement. Um, The IOC confirmed that it had concerns about judging in the sport, as well as conflicts of interest among several AIBA board members, which seems reasonable, given that following the 2016 Games, uh, I believe every single one of the 36 judges and referees were suspended after accusations of corruption. And let us also not forget the glory that was 2012, when Turkmenistan referee Ishanguli Meritz Nyasov was expelled from the Games after Azerbaijan's Magomed Ab. Hamidov won a contest that he was officiating despite being knocked down six times in the final round. I think you uh, just made up for any pronunciation issues earlier with, with that gauntlet that you just uh, navigated your way through. There you go. Exactly. You're back on, back on level terms now. Yes. All right. We're good to go. Um, the IOC said it had to act after a six-month investigation found multiple problems with AIBA, including the risk it could go bankrupt given its its financial state is so bad that it could not even open a Swiss bank account despite being based in Lausanne. Mm. Nazis could open Swiss bank. (laughs) It should be pointed out. Um, In 2017, in response partly to these financial concerns, AIBE President Ching Kuo Wu was removed via a vote of no confidence. Great, you might think. That's progress, that. That's good. That's good. Well, no. The IOC report found, uh, excuse me, expressed particular concern about, quote, ongoing legal, reputational and financial risks due to Wu's replacement. Gafur Rakhimov being identified as a key member of a criminal group composed of leaders and senior members of several Eurasian criminal groups by the U.S. Treasury Department, which also said he was one of the leaders of the Uzbek of Uzbek organized crime hmm. uh, in the interests of legality and personal harm and the avoidance thereof, it should be pointed out that Rachimov denies any wrongdoing. <laughs> All I have to say about that is boxing. Ladies and gentlemen, boxing. <laughs> Never stop being you. Or, as Michael Condlin would say, you cheating bastards. <laughs> Wow, great stuff. Uh, I'll just add one note here uh, that, uh, and I'll quote uh, fightnews.com on this. The World Boxing Association, boxing's oldest governing body, has offered its vast experience to help oversee boxing for Tokyo 2020. You know, uh, the the AIBA isn't looking so bad. Uh, you know, it, if anyone can make us miss the AIBA and its levels of incompetence and corruption, uh, well, uh, first it's Putin's White House. But after that, it would be the WBA. Wow. Interim Olympic medals for everybody. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Uh, as Kieran noted at the top, we're going to wrap things up with a longer-than-usual mailbag segment this week. We're going to answer four listener questions instead of our typical one or two. And we start with an interesting one from David Cushion, uh, at ABC David Cushion, a nice guy who I met in Canastota, actually, a few years ago. Uh, David writes, Hi, guys. Love the show. If Leonard and Hagler had a rematch following their controversial fight, how do you think it would have gone, and who do you think would have won? Thanks, guys. Hashtag Ask Show Pod, which uh, is a good reminder that we should remind you. I always put that hashtag Ask Show Pod on your tweets if you want to get into the mailbag. So, uh, Kieran, what do you think? Leonard Hagler 2, how would it have gone? 
You know, uh, I'm actually one of those people. I might be the only person who hasn't obsessively watched Leonard Hagler over and over. And, and I don't I'm not one of those people who has a really strong opinion one way or the other as to what the results should have been as to whether Hagler was ripped off or not. Um, I might not have seen it actually at all in the last 30 years. But wow. Uh, um, as we know, the reason Leonard finally took the fight in the first place because he felt that he saw a decline in Hagler um, and mm. he fought in a way that enabled him to take advantage of those declines. So would he have been able to get away with that strategy a second time? Would Hagler have led him? Would Hagler have been able to actually stop him from doing so? Uh, and, and I don't know. Um, I think he would have... Uh, Marvin Hagler probably put a little bit more effort into such things as the ring size and, and other such factors. Uh, I do think... The safest prediction to make about every match is that Hagler would have fought Southpaw from the very beginning. Right. Um, other than that, it's hard to know. I, I kind of suspect, and I'm going to dodge the question in my, my own inimitable fashion by saying that I suspect that Leonard would have figured that maybe Hagler would figure him out a second time and would therefore have gone running right up to 168 as he ultimately did anyway. Ah, <laughs> that is a serious duck of the question. Just refusing to uh, to acknowledge that a rematch could have happened. Exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, you you one of the th- key thing that you said, uh, I, I think, was just that uh, you know Leonard very specifically waited until he thought he saw decline in Hagler uh, and then wanted to pounce on that fight. Not that Sugar Ray proved to have that many more good years left, but I get the sense that Hagler's body was really winding down. So. I think had it happened, say, a year or so later, I kind of think it's another close fight that goes Ray's way. Maybe a little like Canelo Golovkin, you know, throw out the scorecards from those fights. Just the general impression is that Canelo did better in the second fight. I think we would have seen something like that here. Mm, interesting. All right. Next up, this tweet comes from Fernando at Nando Lamas, who writes, it sounds ridiculous at face value. That's always a great way to start. <laughs> what I'm about to say is, Stupid. That's how I begin every podcast. But why isn't Deontay considered for any pound-for-pound list? Uh, Usyk is basically the same size. I think it's at least a 50-50 fight, yet Usyk is rated as high as number one, and Deontay can even sniff top ten. By the way, I think Deontay Wilder KOs Usyk. Um, Well... I would pick a few nits with some of the things he says in the question. Uh, I'll double back around to those, but... This is an important question. Um, I know some people think pound for pound is stupid, um, but I think it's important for conversational purposes. And it's certainly important if you are going to discuss pound for pound lists to figure out where heavyweights fit in. As Larry Merchant always said, the pound for pound rankings were devised as a way to elevate non heavyweights. You know, obviously, if everybody fought everybody at their actual size, the best heavyweight would win. Pound for pound was initially a way to say that Sugar Ray Robinson was the best, even though obviously Joe Lewis would have knocked him out. So to Larry, pound for pound is for everybody but heavyweights. That's one Mm -hmm. approach. I don't agree with it. I don't follow that. Um, If a heavyweight is, in my opinion, one of the best 10 fighters in the world, then I will rank him. That said, within the heavyweight division, I don't think you can separate heavyweights based on size like you know 20 years ago or so for his actual size maybe chris bird was better than lennox lewis but lennox was on my pound for pound list and bird wasn't because they're both heavyweights even if one is 210 pounds and the other is 245 um so same thing here if Usyk is a heavyweight then he's judged as a heavyweight 
which means even though I currently have him ranked number seven pound for pound, and that's about as low as you can have him. I, I, most people seem to have him maybe around number five or so. But, um, you know, once he actually fights at heavyweight, once he's no longer a cruiserweight, I might have to remove him from my top 10 mm. um, because I agree with Fernando. Deontay probably knocks him out and I'd make Usyk an underdog against Joshua and Fury. And maybe he's about even money with Ortiz or Povetkin. So if they're all in the same weight class, I can't rank Usyk in my top 10, but not have Wilder, Joshua or Fury in there. So that's my stance. Um uh, to to clarify again, uh, you know where I disagree with some of the things that uh, Fernando included in his his uh, tweet to us. Wilder does sniff some top tens. Uh, I personally don't think he should. Like I haven't considered including him in my personal top ten, uh, and I don't have Joshua in there either. But some people do, and. If Usyk is rated number one by anyone credible, I haven't seen it. Um, yeah. I'd say that the average ratings are, like I said, maybe number five or so for Usyk and Wilder about 15 or so, between 15 and 20, something like that. So the gap isn't as enormous as Fernando suggests. Uh, but anyway, the way that I do pound for pound, Usyk probably comes out of my top 10 after his heavyweight debut, at least until he beats a top heavyweight. Mm. Uh, continuing on the pound for pound theme, uh, Anthony Lyons at Anthony Lyons 77 writes, uh, love the pod. Always, always good to butter us up a little. If you can, if you, right. if you have the characters remaining in your tweet to include that right. smart move, smart move. Uh, he asks, what does Naya Inoue have to do to break pound for pound top three? Lower weight classes are not in the mainstream consciousness, but you guys should not let it influence decision. P.S. His win at weekend, the little little bit of broken English here, or or maybe again trying to fit it all in the, inside uh, one tweet sized uh, tweet sized tweet. Wow, good wording by me. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, he says his win at weekend far more impressive than Wilder's comma level of opposition. So I uh, you can fill in the necessary uh, words to connect that there. I think we all get what he's saying. Uh, what do you think here? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think, uh, in a way, he probably is in quite a few top threes, uh, particularly after his performance last weekend. Um, personally, he's been in my top ten for a long time, and he's in my top five now. Mm -hmm. um, for me, to take my example, my only issue is that it isn't just a case of taking him in isolation. Um, you know, it's easy to forget that every time we see a guy do really well, that actually the other people who are in and around that that position on pound for pound list also tend to do very, very well. Um, looking for Can Canelo, for example, is presently my number three. He's got an amazing resume. And mm -hmm. I also added to that, I have an incredibly hard time separating Canelo from Golovkin. Um, so in my mind, you're probably either ahead of both or behind both because yeah. I have a really hard time splitting those two up. Yeah. Um, I do still have Lomachenko number one. Um, I'd listen to arguments personally for moving Inoue to number two. Um, if he does to Nonato Donaire what I fear he might, that might be enough to move him up yet further uh, on, on other people's list. But I don't think there could be any doubts about his ability or his resume at this point. I, th I think the implication there that people aren't paying attention to Noya anyway on the pound-for-pound -pound list because of his weight class, I, I, I disagree fundamentally with that. Uh, 
uh, I think there is widespread recognition and has been for a while about just how good Inoue is. And every time we think we know how good he is, he looks to be even better. <laughs> I, I, I don't think there's, there's any incident, any way you can make the case that Inoue is, is being sort of litigated against because of his size. Um, I, there's recognition that he is a phenomenally, phenomenally good fighter. And he, he certainly has the makings of a potential number one pound for pound, uh, the way he's just blasting through opposition. Yeah, uh, I, I would agree with that. I think that, you know, a year or so ago, maybe this complaint would have made more sense when yep. there was a lot of pound for pound lists that didn't yet include Inoue. But now now he's up there pretty high on, on just about everybody's. Um, the one thing that Anthony said, you know, his, his uh, Inoue's win over Rodriguez was far more impressive than Wilder's. Uh, I wouldn't say far more impressive. You can't be far more impressive than Wilder right. was. Uh, but I would agree. The level of opposition was indeed better. Um, this kind of goes against Anthony's case, but I saw a couple of people putting Inoue at number one uh, yeah. after this. And I think they might want to settle down a little. I, I get the temptation because he looks so great, but people also fall into a trap of falling in love with a destructive offensive fighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe on the eye test, He's comparable to Lomachenko and Crawford right now. But those guys are great two-way boxer punchers who, who've proven it more. And, and pound for pound is a combination of ability and accomplishment. You can't just ignore accomplishment. That's how you end up with a certain boxing writer who I won't name uh, back in 2001 trying to put Panchito Bajado in his pound for pound top 10 when he had like eight or nine fights against nobodies. Um, so I, well, you know, that held up well. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, you know, the eye test is a big part of pound for pound. Uh, but you, you got to look at the resume and the guy has to have proven it against a certain level of opposition. And Inoue takes a, another step on that path with, with each fight, of course. Okay, and uh, finally, ending where we began this podcast with the heavyweights, uh, we have uh, a tweet from Shane Smith, or at least it's pronounced Shane Smith, but it is spelt at Crush High. <laughs> and he asks, in a perfect world, <laughs> yes, um, where fighters fight each other regardless of networks and promoters, how do you see a Super 6 tournament going in the heavyweights division? I'll leave it to you guys to decide the participants. Obviously, this is totally unrealistic. Uh, this is not a perfect world. Uh, we might be waiting another two years or more for any two of the top three to fight each other. Uh, but in this dream world, it would be a really fun time for a heavyweight Super 6. Um, and I'm not going to uh, fulfill Shane's request here and, and play it all out. That's a little silly, I, I think. Uh, I'll just say who I'd put in the tournament. Obviously... Wilder, Joshua, and Fury. You have to start with those three. Uh, then Usyk. He's a wild card. Has to be in there, I think. Yep. Luis Ortiz is a pretty yep. easy pick for me to include. The final spot is a tricky one. I think it's either Dillian White or Alexander Povetkin. Mm. I guess I'd go White. Uh, younger, so. younger, fresher, more upside right now, even though Povetkin might currently still be the better fighter. Uh, so it sounds like you uh, pretty much agree with my, uh, my six. Yeah, no, I agree. The first five pick themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no question. And then, then there is who is that person on the bubble? I, I think Dylan White. I think he, he has, you know, he the, the only loss on on his resume so far is the Joshua one, and and he does 
look as if, if anything, he's actually improving in, 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 in his all-round game. And, and you know, also you won uh, a Super 6 tournament in which those involved can sell the whole concept very well. Hmm. And uh, Dillian White yapping at Tyson Fury and Anthony <laughs> Joshua and getting it back would help. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we return to the real world to wrap things up, and uh, that will do it for another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week for a post-fight analysis of the uh, perfectly predicted Andy Ruiz KO1 over <laughs> Anthony Joshua. We will talk about the 2019 International Boxing Hall of Fame class, and there's a pretty, pretty good chance we'll be joined by one of this year's inductees. And we will also look ahead to Gennady Golovkin against Steve Rolls. Until then, thank you for listening. <laughs>